0: This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast.
1: Have you ever wondered what it's like to work at Google? Does Google really have a climbing wall at the office? And how important is practical programming experience if you want to work at Google? Join us today as we pick the brain of a Googler. Today in the Tabletop Inventing Podcast, we're talking to a Googler. Someone who works for Google. If you're curious about some of the things you've read about Google, their employees, and the amenities at the office, stay tuned. On the interview, Eric and I had such a great conversation that we went over our interview time. So we added some bonus footage at the end of this episode, so don't miss it. After college, Eric Hennigan worked for the U.S. Navy as a programmer. That experience convinced him to sharpen his skills as a programmer and he went back for a Ph.D. in computer science from UC Irvine. Along the way, he discovered the best students are actually self-taught. Eric has worked at several companies as a programmer, including Zodiac Aerospace, but currently he's a coder for Google. He doesn't say much about his duties as a YouTube ad wrangler, but his views on getting a great education are priceless. My guest today is Eric Hennigan. Uh, Eric has a PhD in computer science from UC Irvine and before that he had he got a degree in physics and math from UCLA and currently he is working for Google and if you have ever been watching a YouTube video and one of those weird ads shows up Eric has something to do with that we might ask him what he has to do with that and he may tell us or may not be able to tell us we'll find out he says that his favorite accomplishment in life is actually that he he made it to Google because they feed him And that doesn't seem like that would be a a big deal um, if you like to cook, but Eric really doesn't like to cook. And in fact, uh, given the choice between having to make something to eat or not eating, he would more likely not eat. So the fact that Google feeds him is good, and it makes him a good uh, software programmer where he is because he doesn't have to think about that. So Eric, tell us more about uh, working at Google. What's that like?
0: Well, the people there are really friendly. The office has a lot of perks. And it's not even the Mountain View campus where they have like swimming pools and stuff. So this is a satellite office in of Venice Beach, and they have like a climbing wall and a quarter basketball court and a, a courtyard and an on-site gym and an on-site masseuse. Although the massages aren't free, you got to pay for those. So you said climbing wall. Do you climb? Uh, the climbing wall at that office is is more of a bouldering wall. I was every day using it for about a half an hour.
1: That is cool, because I, like, I actually like bouldering and climbing. So how did you end up at Google?
0: So I was getting my PhD a few years ago. In the last year of doing that, I found another job because I needed some money, because the grant had run out. So I found a job, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was working for Zodiac Aerospace, uh, testing their equipment. They make the little TVs in the back of the airplane seats that you watch movies on. Oh. And so I was writing test software for them. And after about a year and a half of that, a Google recruiter reached out to me on LinkedIn. Interesting. So so, so I got the job because a Google recruiter found me interesting.
1: So let's back up a little bit because I'm always curious how people end up where they are. And Google sounds like a really cool place to work. But uh, let's go back really, really far. Have a great school. What do you remember about being in, I don't know, third or fourth grade.
0: I, I remember they had a, a small room where they had a bunch of new computers. At the time, it was uh, Apple machines. And I remember a couple years after that, Oregon Trail. And I remember in sixth grade, there was a gate program where you could play with computers. And and they weren't shiny new Apple machines. They, they were old machines with the really five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy, floppy disks. <laughs> but but the, that was all fun stuff to play with. And I do remember, even at that age, I found the computers very interesting. They tried to teach us uh, something like Logo with the little turtle, and yeah. you write a little program to move yeah. it around. And I remember really enjoying that. And I remember the teacher was a little bit confused as to what it was doing.
1: Well, actually, we, we know some people who who'd be very excited that you mentioned the word logo because that uh, that was actually quite a an important program in in the computer learning and yeah. uh, the tech ed space actually. Yeah. But it's curious that the 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 teacher wasn't very comfortable. But did you learn, even though he wasn't very comfortable, or she wasn't very comfortable with that?
0: Oh, oh yeah. So um, it's very very difficult if if you have twenty or thirty students that are of grade school age and you put them in front of a computer and they can do stuff. So I I was playing around a lot, but in reality, the playing around was was exploring what the system can do, and it's really educative. So the fact that she wasn't able, because of the number of students, to give me an exact script uh, allowed me to explore some things that, that weren't on the script. And I think that's incredibly useful. It looks like play, but it's learning. All right, So, and that was up through what, like
1: fifth, sixth grade? Yeah. So what was middle school and high school like for you?
0: So middle school, I I do not recall in middle school that they had a a set room full of computers or anything like that. The grade school definitely had it. Thinking back now, they definitely had it because of some federal grant funding or something as part of the program. Uh, The middle school didn't have that. I remember it being kind of small and then branching out in some trailers. And in, I got pushed ahead and I was able to learn algebra in eighth grade and and then move on to high school. And the high school building was really pretty old, built in the 50s. And I shared some of the teachers in in middle school and high school that my own mother had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's a small town. That happens. The teacher's there for a very long time, and they teach both generations, kind of. So when you think back to your
1: grade school and middle school and high school experience, was there a time in there when you discovered that you enjoyed learning? Or,
0: well, did you even think like that? Was that a... Well, I, I kind of thought of it as a prison. <laughs> <laughs> but I, did, I didn't have the words to express that at the time. So, so I remember being mostly incredibly bored with all of the classes and, and just doing mostly the minimum, except for the, the math classes. I, I really liked the math classes, and I didn't have to try hard at them, and they were really boring because I could get the lesson in five minutes what they spent the whole hour on. So did you? What? So what did you do outside of school? Was there anything
1: that you did outside of school that kind of fed your need for learning, or were you kind of the typical go?
0: I I remember not doing very much. So so at that time, um, this was before the internet. So so my grandparents had purchased us a computer. That they they were really wealthy grandparents, and I could play around on it, but there wasn't a lot to do except like play video games on it, because it, it didn't have the internet. There wasn't a lot to explore. It's whatever it came with, basically. So where did the
1: interest in computers develop for you? Was it there in grade school or was it later?
0: I, I remember my interest. Well, I definitely had an interest in grade school with, with the GATE program and being able to, to do things there. And and that was fairly unstructured. But I don't remember a really strong interest until high school. So So I had these earlier interests, but there wasn't any way that they could have been fed. So what until did, high school. So what did you do in high school that started to feed that interest? So in high school, the, it it was I was in high school up until 2000, and and the World Wide Web kind of got a good start in 94 through 96. So then I could stay late in the high school after hours and fiddle around on the computers there, and really like that. So so I was able to surf the net and read a bunch of stuff. So did you find yourself becoming less bored with being at school? Yes. Well, cuz cuz finally I'm allowed to, to do some more self-directed stuff and that's far far less boring than being talked at. So it sounds
1: so if I if I could read between the lines a little bit, it sounds like as you went through school that it didn't feel particularly relevant. You weren't very challenged and the result was that you were bored, and it felt like a prison. Ha- yeah. ha- but somehow, when you had knowledge at your fingertips again, or maybe, I don't know if again is the right word, but when in high school when that occurred, that suddenly you felt like there was a lot more meaning and interest and purpose in the whole learning process.
0: Oh, yes. And and without any goal in mind. So, so I didn't have the idea that I would one day grow up and work for Google. I had no idea what was going to happen in, in my life in five years from then. But I really just, at that moment, liked being able to surf the net and read about things. And And I fiddled. I even fiddled around with Linux. I really begged my grandmother to buy another computer, an updated one, and, and get an internet connection, and played around with that, and had a, a good experience learning from it. Even though... And my whole family realized I was just addicted to the machine. Because <laughs> there wasn't a time where I wouldn't be on it. so So I completely monopolized it, but... I'm still addicted to these machines. they're wonderful, so what
1: kind of so what kind of stuff did you do? I mean, there in high school uh, so you were surfing the web. What kinds of stuff were you looking for?
0: I remember uh reading the anarchist cookbook <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
1: I'm not sure we should recommend that on the on the podcast <laughs> that's
0: what, I was interested in those kinds of things so so at the time, I was kind of interested in in explosive materials and that kind of stuff i never I never ended up building a weapon
1: I should clarify here uh, both eric uh, and i had an opportunity to work together a few years ago at uh, a navy base here in california and one of the things that was a big deal at the navy base was they actually had a big uh, test range and a lot of the people that we knew in the town actually worked in the test range blowing things up and so oh,
0: oh and they'd explode stuff that was like old and sitting around and now hazardous
1: Yeah. And so it was actually kind of a a normal part of the culture for kids to think about, you know, blowing things up and exploding things. And I think in the whole time I was there for what, 10 years, I think we had one scare from someone who was collecting something in their backyard that they shouldn't. But in general, um, these are people who are researchers trying to understand, you know, explosives and, you know, use them for interesting engineering purposes, you know. Uh, But so as a, teenager growing up in an environment like that it was probably pretty natural to look at that although
0: well i i never had any intention of blowing something up at a school i really my my whole intention was to get something that would make a nice explosion and then take it out to the unoccupied desert and watch it go bang well you know we um i think we get nervous in
1: in the educational system when we think about things that are dangerous partly because we have uh, a legal system that puts us in a position of having to worry about stuff like that. You know, someone can sue you because, you know, as a school, you didn't catch that student that was, you know, thinking in the wrong direction. And you know, we now have whatever insurgents or whatever you want to call it. You know, here in the U.S., we worry about like terrorist acts and all of these things. But my, under- I mean, I remember as a kid, uh, one of the most spectacular things that I ever did was I collected a bunch of fireworks and I kept jumping the gunpowder out into a 35 millimeter film canister. <laughs> and, and I remember it, it, I thought, you know, it'd be easy to fill up a 35 millimeter film canister, but it turns out those, those explosives, you know, fireworks and stuff has, have almost no gunpowder in them.
0: Oh, there are a lot of packaging.
1: And, you know, and I, I think, I think it took me a year and a half to fill that thing up a third from, you know, ke- you know, getting things from 4th of July and New Year's and, you know, cause I wasn't like telling people to buy fireworks and I wasn't like telling my mom I was doing this. And I remember one day, you know, just I I finally got tired of waiting. I thought, well, what would happen if I just lit that whole thing on fire? So I took it out to the yard and, you know, stood it up in the driveway and dropped a match in it. And it shot a flame out about four or five feet. And I thought that was spectacular and laughed hysterically and then realized that, you know, a year and a half of collecting was gone. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think... I think kids have always been interested in, in that idea of, you know, something exploding or something, you know, dropping or flying or, you know, these far out things you always see on television.
0: Oh, really dynamic animated stuff. Yeah. And they make really good um, chemistry demonstrations.
1: So did you look up, so were you looking up like chemistry of how these things work? Because I, I kind of got sidetracked there. I, I
0: did look up some of that, but um, I, w- I was looking up mostly how, how to assemble them and and of course i didn't have the materials available
1: so what other kinds of things were you looking up
0: uh i played starcraft a bunch uh, it was it was a video game they they have a new one out recently starcraft 2 <laughs> <laughs> but but after high school i actually completely lost interest in video games they they just seemed sort of boring and routine
1: so that's in- interesting because i you know i mean we normally think of uh you know someone who's a Software engineer, computer scientist, you know, being very interested in computers, and sometimes they're interested in video games, and sometimes not. But what was it about the video game that was interesting at the time, and what became so, boring? So, at about the
0: it? at the time, it was gameplay, and a lot of it was um, hanging out with friends to to do group battles online, or, or on on a local network. And and then after high school, I just got well. Fr- friends went off to college, so we kind of split up. That's a normal occurrence. And then I didn't really make very good, strong friends when I got to college. But even if I had, video games wouldn't have been a primary interest of mine anymore. I just reached an age point where I saw the games is not accomplishing much. And and I'd much rather have, have been reading a book about something or, or pursuing some other interest.
1: So I think a lot of parents, uh, we spend time as parents, I have teenagers, so I spend time thinking about this. You know, I watch my teenagers playing video games and I wonder, you know, like, what's happening inside the mind of my teenager as They play video games, you know, and the picture that comes to mind, you know, the, the, the worrisome picture is the, you know, the 30 year old teenager sitting on your couch playing video games, you know, and then that kind of bothers, you know, parents when they think about, you know, they, they project ahead and they get that f- sort of fear response about the video games. What, well, what would you tell parents about video games and teens in that sort of space?
0: So that's a thing that can happen. And. I, I'm not sure what's behind it. So, so it could be that there's some kind of addictive behavior with the video game and it's gameplay. And they just get sucked into that. And, and they never grow to be interested in anything else. And it can be maybe they're using it as, a, as an escape. That, that is, they're afraid to be interested in anything else.
1: So did, do you have friends that fell into both of those categories? The, the one where you, you know you played for a while in high school and then you got out and did other cool things with computers and then those who kind of got sucked into the video game?
0: Well, all the people I work with, a lot of them still do play video games, but, but it is just an entertainment for them. It's not a real focus of their life.
1: So is that, a, in general, kind of a passing phase then, you think?
0: It might be, yeah. So, but, but little kids, I mean, like grade school and whatnot, they're, they're very interested in playing games and and they're actually learning a whole lot when they're doing the, the gameplay they're learning some strategy they're learning interaction with other people and and then eventually you just grow out of it because because you get old
1: <laughs> I think I object to that well I, I like playing video games
0: right and and then <laughs> and then when then when you're 30 and you have kids of your own you can play the video games with your kids
1: so let's uh let's take a turn here because one of the things that I, uh, I wanted to do is talk a little bit about maybe about your philosophy of thinking and learning so maybe we'll jump into our two questions a little early um, and it's I've been interested to ask this question and it's curious because I have a Googler here now and I can ask this question because one of the <laughs> things I, I usually ask is in the digital age with Google and Wikipedia and you know YouTube you can learn just about anything and it sounds like you were that kid. And now you work at Google. So what does it mean in that environment today with all these tools? What does that mean to be educated?
0: Unfortunately, in, in the business environment, being educated means you hold some kind of paper certificate. But I personally don't, rec- I, I mean, I have this paper certificate, and I don't put a lot of stock into it. Because I think it's it's really kind of, you sat in a chair for a long time and got lectured at and passed a few quizzes and tests and that doesn't mean you can you can do the work that a business wants you to do. It doesn't mean that you can apply the stuff the knowledge that you learned. And there's a lot of stuff that that you do as a software engineer and I'm sure other fields that's just practitioner's knowledge. And if the teacher says it or not, it doesn't mean anything to a student because they just haven't gone through the experience of running into, into the trouble that real practitioners have run into. And and because they ran into it, now they carry care about some solution for that problem. So I remember in my growth that after college I got a job working for the Navy and I started writing software for them. And I, I wrote a program that was about uh twelve thousand lines long. And it it took a while, right? It's a few a few months later. But I remember hitting about the ten thousand mark and and realizing that that my habits, my approaches, the way I was going about writing the software wasn't scaling. So, so there were things that I had written and I forgot how they worked. And I, I, wasn't, I wasn't being as consistent about solving problems as I could have been. Because, well, hell, I, I was just out of college, right? And all throughout college, you, you, your biggest program is going to be like 2,000 lines, well, there's a big difference between the habits you can use to solve a program that's a couple thousand. You could a smart person could reasonably keep the entire thing in their head at the same time, and, and it doesn't matter if it has some holes in it. But at ten thousand lines, you can't keep it all in your head, and you really have to start writing it differently. And then in the business world, you're often working on programs that, that are thirty thousand lines plus, if not a hundred thousand, and you, you didn't write those lines. A lot of other people did. And so so now you have to approach how, how are you going to make changes there completely differently. And none of that is even capturable in the education system, which 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 to me makes the system kind of a joke. <laughs> it, it's a lot... You can learn a lot more just by doing an in- internship. And Google, Microsoft, all these companies, they have really good internship programs. Well,
1: what, I mean, what about like a hybrid idea? I mean, I, this is just... I mean, I'm just talking off the cuff here. I mean, what if... What if an education looked like um, you working at, you know, Google for, you know, I don't know, 20, 20 hours a week or twenty four hours a week and then taking classes, you know, to fill up part of the other time and that you picked classes based on problems you were trying to solve in your job. Oh,
0: I, I think that works really well. So so I know on my job I have um, consistently been able to learn more material just by by surfing the internet and looking for answers to the problem I was facing. Stack, Stack Overflow is wonderful. It didn't exist when I started working. And and it's it's completely awesome. I, I no longer use it now that I'm at Google, because we have our own internal uh, code search program. But But when I was working at my previous company, I was on Stack Overflow a couple times a day, searching for some, oh, how do I get such and such to work so and so, and, and it, it's great because you just pick up whatever little tidbit you need. And it, if, you're, if you're well-practiced, you already know your approach and you're just using the Internet to fill in the details. So, so the Internet's great for that kind of superficial research. And it's also really good if you run into a problem, you're able to find a, at least a sequence of links to find somebody who has named that problem and maybe a, a wiki page or something discussing it. Maybe this is a
1: different kind of question because I've I thought a little bit about you know the knowledge that you see on sites like Stack uh, Stack Overflow or you know like uh, the the Google internal code search etc. Versus um, a carefully thought out hierarchical approach to a particular subject that you would get maybe in a class in college does it organize the information differently and it, is that useful in some situations
0: so it it's the internet's definitely not as organized as a classroom would be that that's certainly true cuz the the instructor presumably has taken a lot of care in selecting a specific ordering of things and how they're going to go through and, and the later things build on the earlier things. And the internet has none of this. It You, you just come into an article and you read it and sometimes you don't understand it. So, so I do remember early in my career I was programming and there was a concept I wasn't familiar with, um, which, which is allocating memory on the stack versus the heap. And it, this is a very, very fundamentally important thing If you're dealing with languages like uh, C and C++ and I was using those languages for a couple of years and didn't know the difference and every time I looked up stack and heap I'd get these data structures that that do not explain the problem at all is just because the words mean different things in the different contexts and I did read some articles about the difference between allocating on stack and heap didn't understand it read it again uh, nine months later, didn't understand it. Read it again a few months after that, and then it clicked. Then I really understood what was going on, and and I can build from that knowledge. So so it kind of, I mean, there's an issue where even if an instructor has taken a piece of information or or a subject and organized it into a linear classroom flow. If you miss an earlier piece just because your brain isn't ready, then the rest of the class is kind of not so useful.
1: That's an interesting perspective. I guess I hadn't thought about that, but that's that's definitely true in math. You know, for instance, if you are trying to uh, uh, you know solve a differential equation or something, and you've you know you, you miss two or three techniques earlier, not because you didn't, not because he didn't, the professor didn't speak about it, but perhaps because he or she just you weren't ready to listen to it, like you said. And yeah, I guess it, I never thought about it like that because it,
0: it didn't click. It didn't mesh in with your existing body of knowledge, and and so there isn't a really good way that you, that you remember it or understand what it's trying to tell you.
1: I wonder if there's. Sorry, here I am wondering out loud on our on our podcast. Um, so here comes the here comes the the brain dump. I'm actually curious now because. I very much enjoyed the classroom experience, you know, coming through college and grad school because of the the organization, but I definitely found that once I hit graduate school, I didn't find that it was as easy to to jump in and understand what was going on, and I think partly because I had been spoon-fed the answers through these very, you know, neatly packaged solutions all the way through undergraduate, my undergraduate education ironically in math and physics just like you and I had to get to graduate school and face some really tough problems to actually back up and start asking well how do you think how do you learn how do you solve a problem and I think even in graduate school I didn't have a structure for how to think that through Um, I kind of made it through by accident because I you know I just kept trying I guess but
0: well and and many people with the certificate have that experience, is, is they didn't really take a lot of time. The the classroom almost, I mean, with its deadlines and schedules, it doesn't give you the time to really deeply reflect and internalize the knowledge you're being fed. And I don't put a lot of stock into the certificate for precisely this reason. People went through and they answered the questions, but they didn't. The fact that they have a paper doesn't mean they they thought about it at night and internalized it. So
1: do you have, do you have experience that tells you this? Like, have you worked with people that have the paper and... Um, some are problem solvers and some aren't. Uh,
0: I have the opposite experience, where people that don't have the paper are really good at solving problems. Hmm. That was not what I you to say. <laughs> um.
1: So well, let's flip that back around then. Um. So the people that didn't have the paper that that do have the solutions know how to solve. Um. I, I mean, has this been in your programming experience or?
0: Oh yeah, yeah.
1: And where did they get their knowledge from?
0: A lot of times they're self-taught. And and as a graduate student, I met students that were completely self-taught and obviously bored with the curriculum. Uh, they, and you could I could tell by reading the assignments that they turned in. They're clearly just better at this than all the other students. And, and, and really, it's because they've been doing it longer. Huh.
1: So... Let's shift and go more to the philosophical side than um, the the other question we like to ask. Let me, so let me back up. I'm not sure you, you actually answered our what does it mean to be educated. So I'm going to ask you again yeah. to summarize that. <laughs> what, in this digital age where we have all these tools now, what does that mean to be educated?
0: So I I think to be educated, well, you, you can hold a body of knowledge in your head, right? And mm-hmm. have no certificate verifying or... or Just claiming that you know it and and still consider yourself very very educated so you can just read a bunch of stuff online and it for any topic really you can get all all the material online that you need to be a local expert within a month you just study it at night a couple hours and then a month later you're the local expert on that topic you want you want to be a world expert it takes a little bit longer but the material is there Unless you need like peer review research papers that you have to buy, the materials there. And so being educated to me means that you have this body of knowledge in your head and you're able to apply it to solve problems in that field. All right. So I'm going to
1: actually ask you to expand on that just a little bit because you were, you're mostly talking about reading something somewhere, but then you said at the end. Um, you have to apply it. To apply yeah. It. So does that application have anything to do with the process of being educated?
0: It it certainly does. And it, it has to do with the whole internalizing the knowledge. So so there are some fields that will be fairly theoretic. Let's take theoretical physics, right? It's the most theoretic thing you could do. There there aren't any experiments that we can do to, to say whether or not the world is one way or another because the equipment is so expensive. Mm-hmm the particle detectors and whatnot, they're just too big to build. Yeah, But as you're learning that, as a theoretical physicist, you're toying around with the mathematical models. <laughs> you're doing a lot of, of play with the math, math models, and, and that's an, it's a kind of interaction. It's a very intellectual interaction with a book and a paper, but it is an interaction. Mm-hmm. And you really just don't understand the field if you don't do that. You don't pick up a book and read it and then fall asleep. You pick up the book and you solve the equations. You go through the exercises.
1: Yeah, and I think that I mean that's certainly true wh- whether you're talking about theoretic physics or anything else. I mean, you have you have you have to I mean,
0: I, I I pick on theoretical physics because that's one where it's not as obvious. It isn't
1: as obvious, but I will well, you and I both know we've yeah. done a little bit of physics. I mean, there, there's no matter how theoretic it is, you have to look at the concept which is typically a string of words or an idea out of someone's head and typically the way we approach solving or getting a deeper understanding of that is to turn that that idea into math and that requires putting pen to paper and that is the act in my opinion of beginning to apply the knowledge although you know even if uh, even if you read, uh, another possibility is doing you know sort of the Einstein Gedanken experiments kind of thing, where you think through the experiment in your head. Even though, you know, and that isn't you know reading and assimilating knowledge either. That's taking the knowledge somehow and doing some sort of mental gyration. It's still applying the knowledge, and even if it's all in your head.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So so Einstein had had encountered some concepts, and then he thought, well, how far can we push them? And and he thought in his head these Gedanken experiments, and and then he mathematized uh, what he was saying.
1: So if you put that in a very neat little package, then to be educated is—it's
0: really to have knowledge and then be able to apply it.
1: All right. So with that, then let's let's jump into the last question, which is what is the purpose of an education, and that um, that kind of delves into your philosophical ideological. Perspective of life. What, what? Why do we educate?
0: What so the purpose. I, I think, uh, having having a systematized version of education like like we have in America with the grade school, the middle school, and high school, is is completely ridiculous. But on on a number of levels, one is, if your child missed kindergarten, would they not know their colors? Because I am pretty sure they're going to know their colors. They're just going to assimilate it from the rest of the culture. They're probably, even if you didn't have a class, they're probably going to learn to read. Why? So that they can get along in the culture, just, just so that they can read a menu at a restaurant, or probably so they can text their friends. <laughs> right? They want to communicate. And, and if learning how to read is the way to do it, then that's what that's they will reach an age at which they're suddenly motivated now to learn how to do that thing. And I think our education system. Is is severely broken by the assumption that everybody's learning at the same rate, that they're learning the same concepts at the same time, and that they're learning them in a certain order. It, it's just all ridiculous, because people aren't ready at the same age to learn the same thing. They they lag. So, some people sprint in some subject and lag in the others, and and which which subject it's going to be varies by the kid, and so it's much better to have say a skills-based education where the the child's able to choose what it is they're interested in and then learn those things. And, and because they're interested in doing it, you automatically are going to have much higher engagement in the classroom because they want to be there. They want to learn whatever it is you're saying. And maybe they're 12, maybe they're much older. I don't know. You just wait for them to, to want that knowledge. All right. So... We could probably keep going. We probably shouldn't. Um,
1: but can you take those all those ideas about the you know, what is the purpose of an education, can you boil that down to a sentence or two?
0: So I I would say that the Well, it's hard to say what the purpose of education well, is. Well, and,
1: and, and by education, I, I, I don't I don't always mean the formalized,
0: you know Oh uh, sure, sure. But education
1: system, but like Why do we educate ourselves as humans?
0: One could just be intrinsic curiosity, and another could be extrinsically, I want to make my life better by solving the problems that that I face today. And And that could be problems you have personally, or it could be problems that other people are experiencing and you want to help out. But if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't have the education, it's hard to solve problems. All
1: right. Let's wrap it right there, <laughs> Eric. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, if uh, people on our podcast are interested to connect with you or learn more about what you do, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Uh, that would probably be through mail for through through email. So I can be reached at Eric at gmail.com.
1: Why don't you spell that? Because I'm in the habit of not putting that on our. Oh, uh, you don't have show
0: notes. <laughs> well, I do have
1: show notes, but I don't typically put email addresses because oh. of. Uh, I don't know. Oh, spam bots. Sp- spam yeah. bots. Well, you, you work at Google. We have Gmail that you know, most spam doesn't exist because Google is awesome.
0: Thank you, right. Google. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're happy to provide some products for free. And we make a lot of money on the ads. It's wonderful. <laughs>
1: uh, so uh, spell out your email address so that uh, our customer, our, our uh, listeners can uh, find you if they're interested. Yeah. So, ask more questions. So
0: that's Eric, E-R-I-C dot Hennigan, H-E-N-N-I-G-A-N. At gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you, Eric. I'm glad to be on the show. Every time
1: I talk to Eric, I learn something new. He's just full of excellent insights and thinks deeply about life and learning. So keep listening at the end of this episode for a few more minutes of discussion between me and Eric. For the last month or two, we've been talking about our Resonance Innovation Fellowship here at the end of the podcast, but we're closing registration on that soon. However... If you have students destined to be a programmer or engineer like Eric, stop by the Tabletop Inventing website at ttinvent.com and learn more about the Inventor Camp coming this summer. Inventor Camp is not your typical summer camp. Students actually learn more in four days at camp than in weeks during school, but they don't even know they're learning because it's so much fun. To learn more about Inventor Camp, Go to ttinvent.com. And remember, the future can always be read by those who create it.
0: And in, in computer, well, in the whole computer field, there, there's a very strong emphasis when you go to get a job, you do an interview. And, and the interviews, they're, they can do a phone screen first and then there's whiteboarding. And they'll ask you some silly problem and there's constraints on what problems they can ask, because you have to answer like within an hour. And, and it has to be something that you can reasonably get and then provide a solution for within an hour. So they're not hard problems. They're, they're not like, can you build me a search engine? Because <laughs> <laughs> th- that was more than in one hour's labor, I can assure you. <laughs> they're not like, write me a compiler, because that's many hours' labor. But but they're sort of trivial problems and they're really just to gauge whether or not you have on the one hand knowledge that you've just encountered this kind of these concepts before. On the other hand, that you can explain them to to the interviewer. And and the explanation proves that you were able to apply the knowledge. So I'm gonna push back just a little bit, because you said
1: that to be educated is to uh, and I'm going to paraphrase, to have a, a body of knowledge and then to be able to apply it. Um, I, I guess what we do here um, in at, at Tabletop Inventing, thinking this through, we, we have a fundamental belief that part of the education process isn't that, that you're able to apply it, but you apply it, and that is the process of learning.
0: Oh, I, I definitely agree that, that you don't learn much without application. All right. So, Definitely so agree, agree that. So we're on the yeah. same page. All right. So and and that totally meshes with my experience. I remember being a teenager is, is a profoundly long period of identity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> but in the classical education, you know, around you know around the age of twelve
1: or thirteen, you shift from putting knowledge in to taking that knowledge and applying it, exactly what you're talking about. Um. And you know, there's certainly a lot of people that would say that 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 process needs to be structured in some way and you're saying that maybe that's not as necessary to be structured or what are you saying exactly well
0: i'm saying it doesn't have to be scheduled you, you could still so so for example you can have um people who have structured uh approaches to certain subjects so so you can find podcasts that are like american history and and that means some educator whether they're calling themselves that or not they just care about the topic and explaining it so they're an educator has arranged a series step-by-step things that you can go through. And and if that's what interests you, you can find any number of these people that have such arrangements and find one that you enjoy and, and learn from it. So there is structure there, but it's not the kind of ham-handed, everybody-does-it-the-same-way structure. It's a lot looser. All right, so, so let me
1: play devil's advocate here again and, and ask an, a, the, a different kind of question um what how do you think about the idea of um for the veracity of information you know do you worry about that as much in a situation where um where the education maybe isn't scheduled or is less formalized
0: well at at google <laughs> all all of the engineers are really quite comfortable with we're just starting some project or I've just joined a project and I have no idea what's going on. And, and that's, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's totally expected. Everybody recognizes that, that you feel uncomfortable and it takes a while to get your feet on the ground again. And it's, it's expected that you do this or it is expected that you're able to deal with that kind of discomfort.
1: So when you go but when you go looking for a piece of information, let's say the internet for instance, let's say we Google something, just because we can, and and some information comes up, how can how do you know if that information is valid or not? Let's say for instance it's history? You know, because that's probably the, the quintessential difficult thing to to, yeah. to prove it's veracity. Like how do you know and and how you deal with that then in, in a situation where you where your education isn't formalized or set up in some way where someone has had to vet the information.
0: Yeah, so uh in in that case it's a little bit difficult. Um the self educator can fall into a, a kind of a trap where they're only reading about things that they already agree with. And and that might be completely non mainstream ideas right they just have this one particular belief about how the world is and then they read only articles that speak to that self-educators can totally fall into that trap and i i'm not the kind of person to go around and saying that that they should be kicked out of it e- even even though i think <laughs> that i'm i'm not <laughs> i'm going to try calmly to introduce them to other ideas and and anyone who's lived long enough has probably cha- just changed their viewpoint in some way where, where they flipped on some kind of what they thought was a very fundamental question in their own personal belief system. And it's a result of that they reach a point where they're comfortable changing that idea. They've found un, enough other things on the other side where they can comfortably pivot. And it's wonderful that that, that we're able to share all these different ideas uh, in In an unstructured way, so that people can at least encounter information that's contrary to their own beliefs, all right, so
1: I, we should probably wrap this up, but i I just I, I can't help one last question. Um, in in this environment, how do you keep from falling into that trap of only reading things you agree with?
0: Well, I've already fallen into that trap <laughs> <laughs> on, on several occasions. <laughs> but uh, I, I've been very fortunate um, that, that I'll have a friend or, or somebody else who I agree with about most things, but then I have some small disagreement about some other thing. And it's the, it's the very fact that we disagree about some small thing 're all and and our willingness to be friends about so many other things that i 'm willing to actually go through and and look that thing up and and I have changed my ideas for exactly this reason. Some friend has introduced me to an alternative way, and then I gone and, and read a bunch of articles on it so that sounds like uh,
1: well i can't help thinking about the the social aspect of education because certainly um uh, uh, Dewey and, uh, Piaget probably would have something to say about that, about social learning theory. Um, cause what you just described was this idea that by interacting with another human being, they've changed the trajectory of the kinds of things you learned and why you
0: t- choose to learn them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, ed- education is really about sharing ideas.